This evening we open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 3. In Isaiah chapter 2, we saw the beautiful gospel that Mount Zion will be elevated and the nations are going to flow up to it and hear the gospel. Now in chapter 3, most of the chapter is very judgmental and condemnation on Jerusalem and Judah. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of fifty and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. And the people shall be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. When a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler. And let this ruin be under thy hand. In that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they that lead thee cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy paths. The Lord standeth up to plead, and standeth to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof. For ye have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord God of hosts? Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. 
And that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon, the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets and the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings and the nose jewels, the changeable suits of a parable and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pines, the glasses and the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. Instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of a well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth. And burning instead of beauty. Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. Our texts are verses <clears throat> 10 and 11. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word again this evening. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you heard, the beginning part of Isaiah 3 contains judgments and woe upon Jerusalem and Judah because they are apostate. Verse 1, the Lord's going to take away their bread and their water. Judges, uh, verses 2 through 4, their mighty men, their judges, their captains, their counselors, their men of ability are going to be replaced with children and babes to rule over them. Verse 5 through 7, they're going to be fighting amongst themselves. With the result, Jerusalem is ruined, Judah is fallen. Verse 8. And then the rest of the chapter also includes those judgments and woes that God is going to bring upon what is supposed to be his church, Jerusalem and Judah. And that is the background against which we hear the antithetical expression concerning the righteous and the wicked in verses 10 and 11. Say to the righteous... It shall be well. And then verse 11, really the same idea. Say ye unto the wicked, it will be ill. And they're both going to reap the rewards of their works. If one goes back to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, we read there that the people trust in man and in their own works. They make many idols that they may worship them. What apostasy. 
Now this is the word of God when outwardly if one looked at Jerusalem and Judah, it seemed to be a time of prosperity and peace during the reigns of Jotham and Uzziah. Prosperity and peace like in the days of King Solomon. It seems, it seems like the Lord's blessing rests upon these wicked people. But it's only an appearance. Against Judah and Jerusalem is proclaimed the judgment of God. Everything that they trust in will be taken away. And they'll be left with nothing. They might say to themselves, oh, it is well with us. But the testimony of the Lord is, woe to the wicked. But what about the remnant? That God-fearing remnant, that booth in a cucumber field, that is those who still serve God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ah, to them there is a beautiful, a blessed assurance. It will be well with them. Notice with me the theme, then, the testimony of the church. Notice in the first place the sharp contrast. Second of all, the necessary testimony. And then thirdly, the result of that testimony. Yes, there is a very sharp contrast in our passage. A contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous. We heard about something about that this morning, didn't we? Those who do righteous actions. That is, they have not turned away from Jehovah to serve idols. But by God's grace, they have remained faithful to God. They are those who in their actions and in their walk do so according to God's word and God's law. They hear the word of God and they do the word of God. The righteous are second of all those who love righteousness. They are not concerned with external good works because outward works are meaningless can often be hypocritical. Oh, how the Pharisees liked to parade themselves amongst the people of Israel for the praise of men. But Jesus says that that kind of worship is an abomination to him. The righteous love God from their heart, out of which are all the issues of life. The righteous are not perfect. That's impossible. They have only a small beginning of obedience. They know their sins. And from their hearts they hate that sin. They fight against that sin. They flee from it. Yes, they hate 
sin and sinfulness, and they desire to walk according to all of God's commandments. The righteous, thirdly, are those in whose heart the love of God is spread abroad. Oh, by nature they are enemies. They were enemies of God, not righteous in themselves, not righteous because of anything they themselves have done. But it is the Lord who has drawn them out of the darkness into his marvelous light. The love of God there. Fourthly, the righteous are those who have been justified in the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the blood of lambs and of oxen, looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And now in the New Testament dispensation, the justifying work of Jesus Christ once for all on the cross. Without that work of Christ, they and we have no right to the gracious and life-giving operation of God within us. The meaning of righteous is justification, which we heard in Lord's Day 23. God removes from them the liability to punishment and death and hell, removed by God through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It means that instead of being legally guilty before God, now they are legally righteous before God through Christ Jesus free from the punishment of their sins, given the obedience of Christ himself. And upon that righteousness rests then their being righteous in sanctification, for sanctification is the fruit. The walk of life is the fruit of justification. Always. Fifthly, the righteous are those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, loved from eternity. So you see that the truth of election is implied in our text. Their righteousness doesn't depend upon themselves or upon their own works, but rather it rests upon the sovereign election of God from eternity he loved them and he gave them to Christ Jesus. What a picture of God's people, the righteous. And now, over against the righteous, the wicked. The wicked are those who do not love God or his commandments. They do what is pleasing to their own sinful nature. They don't serve God, but they serve their idols, wood and stone. But idols don't have to be wood and stone, do they? For us, they might be popularity. They might be prosperity. It might be sex. It might be materialism. It might be drugs. Things that we elevate in our lives beside or instead of our God. Yes, yes. They were making idols 
gods of their own imagination in order to serve them. Not only do they not love God or his commandments, but the wicked love unrighteousness. In their outward deeds, but especially in their inward thoughts and desires, their wickedness is really a matter of their hearts. They love what is wrong and is displeasing to God. Thirdly, the wicked never are justified in the blood of Christ Jesus. They are not numbered amongst the true people of God. Oh, they were members of the nation of Judah and citizens of Jerusalem, but they were not spiritual children. Fourthly, they are wicked because they were not chosen by God as his people, but reprobate. Therefore not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and therefore not sanctified by the operation of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Now we have to be careful when we label the wicked, don't we? We label the wicked that they are not saved. But if we see the wicked in the world, if we see the wicked in our church, if we see the wicked even in our own families, we may not call them reprobates, but we call them sinners. And the reason is because we don't know what God's eternal will is for them, do we? God might work conversion in them as he did with Manasseh when he was in captivity at the end of his reign. Or it might be the woman caught in adultery whom Jesus did not condemn but told, go sin no more. Or it might be the thief on the cross who was not saved all of his life, but he was saved when he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or even the Apostle Paul. Elect, yes, but a sinner, trusting in his own works until on the road to Damascus, the Lord turned him around. The point of our text is that the wicked show themselves as wicked just as God's people show themselves as righteous. So with that contrast, the righteous, the wicked, notice with me the antithesis. Two classes of people divide the whole globe. The righteous, the wicked. And those two have always been in conflict. They are absolutely antithetical to one another. Always there is that battle between the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The flood destroyed the world of the ungodly while Noah and his family were safe in the ark. Death, the angel of death, ruined the nation of Egypt while Israel was safe under the cover of the blood of the Passover lamb. Do you see that sharp line between sin and grace? The flood came 
the flood came because the sons of God, we read in Genesis 4, the sons of God and the daughters of man blended those two sides of the line. There was a wicked alliance between the church and the world. The line that intended to maintain distinction between the precious and the vile. And notice with me, there is no third neutral class. One belongs to one or the other. So one is either righteous or wicked. You and I belong to one class or the other. And now the testimony is, as for the righteous, it shall be well with him. If one is not righteous, they are wicked. Even if or though they might not think they are, it will be ill for them. So that's a sharp contrast. The righteous, the wicked. And now, second of all, the second point then is the necessary testimony. There was a sharp contrast, and now... It is Isaiah who comes and he says, notice those first couple words in verse 10, say ye, say ye one thing to the righteous, say ye another thing to the wicked. Say. In other words, these words of verses 10 and 11 are a confession or it is a testimony That's very plain from the prophet's language. There is an admonition here. Say ye. Literally, say ye to the righteous that it is well. So not only is there the fact of the well-being of the righteous, but also then the saying or the expressing their well-being. Therefore, it's a testimony. It's a confession. So notice the sharp contrast, righteous, wicked. The end or the result of the righteous, what's going to happen to them and what is going to happen to the wicked. Now, to whom are these words addressed? Isaiah says, say ye to the righteous and say ye to the wicked. Who must say them? Now, usually it is applied to the preaching, isn't it? It is according to Scripture, it's the calling of the pastor to proclaim this antithetical word of the gospel. To the righteous, he must say, it is well. To the wicked, he must say, it is ill for you. The preacher may not change those words. He may not compromise that message. There's no room for a common grace. God does not say, nor may the preacher say, it is well for the wicked that God loves them. I'll tell you a story. I went to a chaplain's school. And the chaplain had a whole lecture on why the chaplain needs the doctrine of common grace. 
because the chaplain might have in his unit some homosexuals. One is dying. He needs to have a word, a good word to say to them, to encourage them. Is that really what the preaching is about? To make a person feel at ease even as they're sliding down to hell? As they live their wicked lives? Say ye. And that word ye is in the Hebrew in the plural. Isaiah is speaking here to Jerusalem and Judah. And no, when he's speaking to Jerusalem and Judah, he's not talking to the carnal, the wicked people there, for they will never hear nor obey his words. But this is now spoken to the remnant. That is, the cottage in the vineyard, the hut in the cucumber field. He is speaking here to the righteous, and to them comes this command. But the solid, undeniable truth, there is behind these words divine authority. In other words, the preacher or God's people are not making an educated guess of what's going to take place for the righteous or the wicked, but they say it on divine authority. It might be nice for a physician to tell us that we're well. Or it might be nice for a psychologist to say, everything's okay with you. It might be nice for our own conclusions to say, I'm not so bad. But we need more than the fallible judgments of man. We need the infallible authority of God's divine omniscience. When God says, all is well, then let the devil and his subordinates, let the whole world say it is ill, but God says it is well. We know whom to believe, and we know whom we have believed. True faith remains unshakable, even if all creatures contradict the Creator. Now, this is not something that is observable always with the human eye. Sometimes to the human eye, it looks very ill, doesn't it? That was the observation of the psalmist in Psalm 73. The wicked were prospering, and he, the righteous man, was suffering. But God's word is far better than our sight or our experience or our feeling. God says it. God says it in his word. That is a divine authority then behind our testimony. It assures us it is well and it will always be well with the righteous so that we're able to sing with the hymn writer, it is well, it is well with my soul. Second stanza of that song, When Peace Like a River, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood 
for my soul. It is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. That's the testimony. The church of Jesus Christ. The pastors, but also the members to one another. It is well. That, beloved, is a solid, undeniable truth. It is always well with the righteous. Read my text. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him. It will be well with him in prosperity. Now, in prosperity, there are many dangerous temptations, aren't there? That we trust in those uncertain riches. Or as we read in Proverbs 13 with Augur, give me neither poverty nor riches. Why wouldn't he want riches? Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? It is well with the righteous in prosperity, but it is also righteous. It is also well with the righteous in persecution. So evil and difficult, sometimes impossible to bear that persecution. Read some of those literature that we have of the martyrs. Or read some of the literature of saints in many different countries today. Oh, how they are persecuted. How they are burnt out of their homes. How they cannot even have jobs. It is well. Not only at special times in their life, but any and all times. It is well with the righteous from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. It is well with the righteous from the morning of the day to the evening of the day. It will be well with him in that impending struggle that he goes through in this life. It will be good. It will be nothing but good. Oh, Oh, they might suffer tumults and turmoils and conflicts and wars. But it will be good, absolutely unqualified good. For if God is for us, how does the rest of the text go? Who can be against us? That testimony that it will be well for the righteous, is connected with their manifestation of righteousness. And the same is true with the wicked. You see, the text is pointing to that, isn't it? It is well with the righteous, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. You see, the teaching of Scripture is that our works will bear fruit. There is a connection, beloved, between our actions and the result of those actions. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 and 18, says, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruits, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. In other words, from the scripture, what a man sows, that will he reap. 
So what is this relationship? The reward is always in harmony with our works. God will not, God cannot justify the ungodly. The righteous will bear good fruit. And that will bring glory, that will bring eternal life, that will bring the bliss of heaven. But the wicked works, the wicked themselves bear evil fruits. And they will reap wrath and punishment of God, darkness and death, everlasting devastation and desolation. The truth that the reward is in harmony with works, it is well with the righteous. Not only someday in the future, it is well with the righteous right now. Our text really is not speaking about the future. If you go back to our text, you will notice that the words, it shall be, are in italics. That is, that they are not there in the original Hebrew. So the text really says, say to the righteous, it is well. And say to the wicked, it is ill. Well right now. That's part of the testimony of the church. The other part of the testimony, say ye, Woe to the wicked, it will be ill. For the reward of his hands shall be given to him. Those that sow the seeds of wickedness and darkness will reap everlasting desolation. They do themselves evil. It's always evil for him. There is no common grace. It is not the case that God smiles on the wicked and is good to the wicked in this life and then suddenly changes when they die. It is always evil for the wicked. Now there is no time specified in the text. And so we can go from there and say it will be ill for the wicked in time and in eternity. It will be ill for the wicked in prosperous times, fat years, but also in lean years. It will be ill for them in prosperity while they eat their fill. They will be like the criminal eating his last meal in the jail before being put to death. It will be ill for the wicked in adversity because that's only the beginning of eternal wrath. And yes, the church says that also on divine authority. God says it. God says it's not going to be good for the wicked. It's going to be evil. That's the portion of the wicked. Always the portion of the wicked. Bad now, bad in the future. And it gets worse and worse until the very worst occurs He will be cast out into outer darkness. It will be ill for his entire life, for his body as well as his soul. In in health, it's ill for his soul. When he sings his profane songs, he does it with the sword of God's 
judgment against him. When his feet are dancing, his soul is condemned by God. It is ill for the wicked in life. It is ill for the wicked in death. And after death, the judgment. And after the judgment, condemnation and never-ending hellfire and eternal torment, body and soul. Beloved, it must be ill with the wicked. For we read that the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. We read in 1 Peter 2, verse 8, that one is disobedient, that person was appointed by God to stumble over the Word. Confronted with the Word of God, confronted with Christ Jesus, they stumble over Him. It will be ill for the wicked. Boys and girls, it'd be like putting straw or dry leaves too close to a fire. And this guy has done that a couple times with a whole field on fire around him. It will be like the wax in a candle when, the, when it's burning and it melts. It will be ill for the wicked when the temporal world for him ends and eternity begins. Oh, his life might seem like glitter to himself and to others, but his story is really one of outer darkness. That's the testimony regarding the righteous and the wicked. Now this question. Why is that testimony, that twofold testimony, necessary? Notice the prophet says, say ye. It means, first of all, that the righteous believe this in their own hearts. They believe that. They have to be convinced of that in their heart. But believing that, they also have to say it. They have to express their faith, as we read in chapters, in Romans chapter 10. What one believes in the heart, he says with the mouth. So that, even though it might seem like everything is against the righteous in this life, their faith cannot be moved. When it seems like the wicked are in control, they know that God is in control. Horrible, horrible things are done in the church. Horrible, horrible things are done against believers in the world. Read some of those stories on the literature out there of the martyrs today. It appears evil for them. But the eye of faith sees the reality that God is in control and confesses, it is well with the righteous. Boys and girls, I want you to take a story from the Old Testament. The story of Elisha's servant. Do you remember that story? They're in Dotham. 
And the king of Assyria is looking for that prophet because someone is leaking to the king of Israel of Judah all the time where he is going to attack and therefore they're at another place. And so he wants to crush this prophet. And so he comes and he sends his army and he surrounds Dotham where Elisha and his servant are. It doesn't look very good. But then Elisha prays to the Lord and he says, Open thou the eyes of my servant. And then the servant sees that the Lord's horses and chariots and angels are surrounding them and protecting them. The church may not compromise this truth. That, beloved, is the error of common grace. And now some of you maybe say, I know, I know, we've we've had that doctrine taught to us over and over, but we have also new members, don't we? What is the doctrine of common grace? What is the teaching, really, that in this life it is well for the righteous and it is well for the wicked, for God loves both of them and does them good? But that is not the case. There is no common grace in this present time. There is no salvation that is offered to the wicked. It is well with the righteous it is ill with the wicked the church has to say this personally so when you and i are going through troubles and we think has god forgotten doesn't god see from the heart and with the mouth we need to say to ourselves it is well with the righteous i don't understand it i don't understand god's ways but it is well with the righteous the church has to say that not only on the individual level, but they have to say it to their children. It is well for the righteous. For the child, maybe that's picked on at school. Or the child that hears all kinds of nasty things said against him. And the church has to say that also through her office bearers, and especially the minister of the gospel. He's called to teach these truths of sovereign particular grace. It is well with the righteous because God in his grace has saved them and will preserve him and keep him. And it is ill for the wicked because there is no love of God for the wicked but God's wrath now in time and in eternity. So the church has to say it to herself the church has to say it to her children in the continued generations and the church has to make, bring this message this gospel to the whole world it is well only with the righteous and it is ill always to the wicked we have to say that because the church is called to suffer much in this world Contrary to all the appearances in the world, we go up to the house of the Lord and we hear the true reality regarding the righteous and the wicked. And we hear that by faith. It's necessary to hear that. It is well. Not 
by experiences, not by feelings, not by what we see with our eyes, but what the Word of God says. And why is this testimony necessary? Not first of all for ourselves, but it's necessary for God's glory, for God's sake, for God's name and honor are at stake. So it's necessary that there is this twofold testimony. Notice then, thirdly, my third point, the result of that testimony. When the church preaches this gospel, the wicked are warned. Yes, the reprobate wicked are warned. And with hardness of heart, they reject it. And they are condemned in the way of their rebellion and hardness of heart. They are without excuse. Isn't that the point of Isaiah's prophecy in Jerusalem and Judah? For in Isaiah chapter 6, now we haven't gotten that far as we're going through the book, but notice these words. And he said, that is God said, tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? This did not look good to Isaiah at all. He says, wow, i got to be the bearer of that kind of news? How long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And that took place with the Babylonian captivity when Judah and Jerusalem were taken away in the way of their sin." hardened. But this gospel has to be preached. It is ill with the wicked. It is also there for the elect wicked. Elect by God, but they're living wicked lives. They need to hear this testimony so that they may see that they stand condemned in their sins and that they may be converted, that they may be turned from their way of sin to Christ Jesus the Savior. Converted from evil ways and lives to righteous ways. So the gospel is needed for the wicked. The gospel is needed for the righteous that they may be comforted. As I said earlier, there is much tribulation and suffering in serving Jehovah God. The question might be, has God forgotten me? Have I served him in vain? How many accusations are leveled against them? How many injustices are heaped upon them? That testimony whether by the pastor and the preaching, or whether it be by the testimony of saints to one another, what comfort, what encouragement received by the word of God. 
Say ye to the righteous that it is and it shall be well with him. For God sees, God knows, God judges, it shall be well for him. Boys and girls, in school you probably memorized the Beatitudes. Listen to this one, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. It is well. Blessed. And the result of this testimony is that the righteous then will continue to seek the path of righteousness. They will not forsake it. In this past classes meeting this week, there was the retirement of a pastor that was approved. One of the reasons for retirement was, and I quote, the stress of the ministry and the complications of age with dealing with it. But that phrase, the stress of the ministry, whether it be of an aged pastor who's going to retire, or whether young pastors that for a while have to take off from their pulpits, the stress of the ministry, how members of our churches have been aligned by those who left us, Preach this word that the righteous are comforted. They may indeed have to suffer. Their path of life is often dark and lonely. They are oppressed by the wicked. Injustice seems to prosper. But the righteous do not envy the wicked. They know that even in tribulation... There is fruit for eternity. It's not what man thinks of you and of me that matters, but it's what God says. God says and will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy master. Say these words to yourself then. Teach these words to your children and to your grandchildren. Proclaim these words in the church. It is well with the righteous now and forever. And let's talk about the reward a moment. There is going to be a reward of the righteous and their works. But that reward is all of grace, isn't it? In Christ Jesus, we don't earn it. It's God's work within us, and so it's a reward of grace. But the wicked also are going to be rewarded. They're going to receive the reward of destruction, which is well-earned. If this testimony is true, and it is, the righteous... It is well 
living wicked lives, it is ill. What does that mean for us? It means, beloved, that we do not do what we read in Genesis chapter 4, where the sons of God saw the daughters of men and intermarried. They blurred the line of the antithesis. We separate ourselves spiritually from the world. You young guys and you young girls, you do not seek a wife or a husband that is wicked. You don't become companions of the wicked. We fear their wicked ways because we love and fear the Lord. And before we date spiritually, strongly, we make sure that we are equally in Christ Jesus in faith. We shun the evil because we love the Lord. We live in righteousness because we believe that this word of God, say ye to the righteous, it is well. That was the word of God to that elect remnant in Jerusalem and in Judah, even as the rest of them were going to be taken off into captivity. And beloved, that is still the word of God to his remnant today. Say ye to the righteous, that it will be well with him. What a ray of sunshine and brightness breaks here in this chapter in the dark picture. Blessings to be enjoyed by those who love the Lord and serve him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen. Father in heaven, it is difficult at times in our life when we have to suffer, when there is tribulation, when there is persecution, when others laugh at us. We're thankful for the Word of God. We will be rewarded for our fruit of living righteous lives for thee, full of faith. Bless the church of Jesus Christ and that she may not compromise this word of God, but may bring it. That the wicked may be left without excuse, but also that those who are elect but living wicked lives may by the gospel be turned from their wickedness, turned from sin to Christ Jesus. We pray that, Father, for sons or daughters who might be living in sin. We pray that for extended family members. We pray that, Father, for those in the community around us. Lord, bless the gospel preached by the church. Amen.